0: The idea of strategy is one that many people get wrong. For example, the people in your organization are not your competitive advantage. And SWOT analysis won't help you to develop your strategy. Those are just two of the myths that Chuck Bamford exposes while revealing a strategy process that really works. Chuck speaks and consults with numerous organizations as the managing partner of the firm Bamford Associates. He's also an adjunct professor of strategy at Duke University the author of several books about strategy, including the Strategy Mindset 2.0, and a former full-time tenured professor who has published numerous research articles in the top academic journals in the fields of strategy and entrepreneurship. Join us for an illuminating and lively conversation about organizational strategy with Chuck Bamford. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond.
1: I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com.
0: Well, Chuck Bamford, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Thanks, Ben.
2: It's good to be with you, too.
1: Listen, guys, this guy is huge. I'm going to tell you right now that most of the strategy books are crap. And you you know what the best thing about most people's strategy sessions? It's the stale bagels at some garbage Holiday Inn Express, you know, conference center. That's the best thing of your strategy sessions. But don't worry about it. We're going to remedy that today. So if you don't have Chuck Bamford's book, we will put a link in the show notes um. Yep. Ben's waving it. He's got a copy. You need to go get that, right? That's go right. Go get Chuck. And all right, Ben. Let's just get to it. <laughs> yeah. So we have a
0: lot of questions for you today, Chuck. And I think we're gonna have a great conversation. I thought, you know, maybe to structure our conversation a little bit, we're gonna kind of put this into maybe three different categories of topics, and we'll see how that goes. But it's all obviously under the big umbrella of strategy. So we're gonna talk a little bit today about how we de- even define strategy in the landscape of strategy, formulation and implementation, how strategy actually works and how leaders can maybe actually get their organizations to think about and do strategy in a more appropriate way. So maybe let's start with that first piece, which is about defining strategy and a little bit about kind of how organizations oftentimes go about strategy formulation and implementation. So Chuck, how do you define strategy?
2: Yeah, I, 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 you make a really good point. I think people overcomplicate strategy. I think they want it to be some kind of mystical power. And so what they do is they have tons of little things that we do and we do all these different little pieces and we won't even get into something horrible like SWAT. But the fundamentals, of, from my perspective, the fundamentals of strategy fall into two categories. So half of strategy is not frustrating your customers, right? The same half is not frustrating your employees. So half a strategy is just doing the orthodox table stake things that everybody else is doing at the relatively the same level. We don't have to be remarkable at it, but we certainly can't be terrible at it. The other half of strategy is having two or three things that truly separate you in the minds of customers. So that if all these things are table stakes and we're all kind of level here, then these will set us apart and give us something to do. Then, as you shift it into implementation, then it's really 100% of the effort is getting all of my employees on the same page, getting everybody moving in relatively the same direction as consistently as we possibly
1: can, because it doesn't take much to blow a good strategy apart. I think that's great. You know, and it, it's a lot of this for people that come out of the manufacturing world know this idea of quality. And it's, it's a quality within your organization. So, you know, one of the calculations you use is cost of quality or gilding a project. If you go too far, too high quality, and everybody just wants the cheap single-use nonstick pan for the one camping trip they're going to throw out then you're wasting your time and effort. And, and Chuck paints this in his book, which I didn't say the title of his book earlier. It's uh, The Strategy Mindset. I've bought you know so many of these and given them away. But you know, if you take, so you're talking about table stakes, stuff within your organization, how you just operate. If you spend all your time internally, right? That's a cost of quality. You're, you lack velocity and organizational capacity to do the cool stuff that's gonna help you win.
2: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I, I loved how you used the quality thing. So I had a client and we're, we're down talking to them and they're going they're over all their things that are competitive And this one guy goes, he says, well, he says, ours is just so much better what we make. I just have no idea why anyone would buy anybody else's. And I said, well, how do you know it's better? He goes, well, we do, and he went on and on. Finally, he says, look, Chuck, you want it really, he says, Ours are 0.6 microns. The nearest competitor they can get to us is 0.77. And I was like, wow, that sounds fantastic. (laughs) Does any customer care about the difference between (laughs) pointing? And he goes, well, no, the other works just fine. But ours is much better. And I'm like, oh, my God, we're not going to ever make it here. The The – people want to do and they want everything to be great and they want to believe that everything that they're doing is so critical to the organization so much of what we do most of what we do most days at most organizations is just table stake stuff we need to do it no question about it right you don't do it we're out of business we need to do it well as i tell people with all apologies you can't suck at it you need to do it at least relatively well but we don't need to do it any better than anybody else nobody cares how good your payroll department is right you get paid actually quite honestly most customers could care less whether you get paid or not but nobody cares how good your payroll department is so how good does it need to be it needs to not frustrate my employees after that quite honestly i want to put all my time money and mental firepower as you said chris on something that's gonna separate.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so great. You know, I'd like to kind of take a step back here and we mentioned your book, it's called The Strategy Mindset 2.0. There's a a second version, so get the 2.0 version out there. (laughs) Uh, But I'm curious to know from your perspective and your words, why did you call it The Strategy Mindset in particular?
2: Yeah, I, we we uh, we wrestled with the title for quite some time. Where I, you, you, like, as you guys know, right? You list like forty titles for what you're gonna do, and you narrow it, and you pull it back. And you're like, "How do I get to Indigo?" We're gonna, you know, <laughs> um, it's really about getting everyone in the organization to to understand and implement the strategy of the organization. And so when I talk to Employees, they're not executives, they're not in charge, but I just talk to employees about what they're doing. Like, why do you do what you do? And if it's about making money, well, then that's the wrong answer because everybody wants to make money. If it's about making more sales, that's the wrong answer. Everybody wants to make sales. The question is, why would a customer come to us? Why would a customer part with their hard earned money? So I think everybody in an organization from the top to the bottom has to have a strategy mindset about their dealings with customers, employees, with everything they do every single day.
0: That's great. That's great. Yeah. So uh, what you're implying is that perhaps for strategy to work in the way that it should, that it's not just something that happens in some sort of
2: smoke-filled room and ends up in a binder on a shelf somewhere, right? Oh, yeah. As as we know, Ben, that the, the annual strategic plan <laughs> is one of the horrors of corporate America, where they have the big binders and nobody knows what's in those binders. Look, if a, if a rank-and-file employee can't tell you what separates them, if a rank-and-file employee can't tell you what we're working on right now to make sure that we're up to median in table stakes, if a rank-and-file employee can't tell you why a customer is coming to buy from you, then we're out of business, I, I, I'm I, really great response. So this happened just two weeks ago. I'm talking, I'm interviewing all the people at this particular client and I get to this one group and they just sitting there with their hands folded and they're like, well, we, we have no customer contact. So I don't know why you keep asking us these questions about who we compete with and why people buy from us. We don't know. And I'm like, wow, well, that's good because I was looking for the group to recommend that we get, that we get laid off from this organization. We weren't adding any value. And now I know which group it is. How can you possibly come to work every day
1: and not be able to know those kinds of things? It, yeah. it happens all the time. It, it does. And it, at least they're honest about it. But so just so it's not. Chris, <laughs> right? you just gave them, you just gave them validation. Right. Well, it's like, Okay, listen, the first step is recognizing that I'm the problem, but I I don't want to make it all doom and gloom here. This is actually a positive, concrete methodology that Chuck has. Ben and I, the reason we're having Chuck on here is we've been using his stuff for forever. But the first step is, hey, just if you don't know where to go, you don't know all the sexy differentiator, market, voice of the customer, all those kinds of things, you can first start off and say, hey, do we have table stakes in our org and it's as simple as looking at the test of the kids sitting next to you and cheating right True. you you, 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 go, you, go, you go to facebook group and you ask somebody in an hr group hey what hr recruiting software do you use okay they're about the same size org hey chuck go buy that one would you <laughs> you know hey how how did their um employee job descriptions look on indeed oh, okay, we'll just take that template and make it like ours, right? And so table stakes, you could spend years and make a ton of money consulting just getting people up to that median quality of how you operate. So, you you know, pause the episode, go forth and conquer that mountain. Um, (laughs) but But then there's this other side. So let's talk about like some of the myths that prevent us from getting um to the other side. Now, we won't go through all the myths in your book cuz people need to go buy this thing. But one of the things that we hear this all the time is my people are a competitive advantage. Talk about that a bit, Chuck.
2: Yeah, and and it's a killer. I I I uh I arrived at a client's manufacturing site a couple years back and he has a huge rock, huge rock out front of the manufacturing plant. And it says our people are our competitive advantage. So I get inside to his office, and the first thing he says to me, he says, well, do I have to repaint the damn rock? And I said, no, it's a fun lie. Go ahead and keep talking about it. Uh, the, the reality is that people deliver on our competitive advantages. People deliver on our strategy promise to the customer. But people are not our competitive advantage. If, if I employ a thousand people and two of them resign tomorrow, I'm not going to go, well, that's it. I'm out. You know, we're closing the business down because we lost them. No, we're going to replace them. Even if we lose the CEO of an organization, we replace them. It might take us longer. It might, right, it might be a bigger deal for us to have to do it. We might lose a little in momentum along the way, but it's not the person. Every company has got great people. Every company has got good people, average people, poor people, and people we should have fired last week. Every company's got a span of people. We lose our people to other companies. We take people from these other companies. So- stop with the, it's our people, and we're just going to invest and invest and invest in them. Go Good luck with that, right? Because I don't care how much money you invest in them. I want to know how to tile a wall. Can you tell me how to tile the wall? So what I tell folks is, look, people are critical. People are how we deliver on our strategy promise. The structures we put in place, the culture that we have in the organization that enables us to do those things. There's lots of elements that make our people right, the way we deliver, but it's not the person along the way. Sorry, yeah. that's a long – you can get me really going. I've got, as you all know, videos on this. I've got <laughs> blogs on this. I, people hate this.
1: <laughs> no, I, but it's a I great love- point. <laughs> I love that you're talking about this because the thing is, is let's say your a person is your competitive advantage. You better have your company's worth $20 million. You better have a $60 million insurance policy on that guy. Agreed, Chris, 100%. And, you know, and, and here's the thing you want, and we'll see this in organizations that are falling apart and they'll say, oh, Frank, he will jump through fire to save us. Well, then you've got a individual driven success rather than a process based success organization and you are vulnerable to massive disruption so you know maybe maybe you do have a person or two that's a competitive advantage but if you do you're <laughs> wrong
2: yeah and well you i think you said it real well you're vulnerable right you're just terribly vulnerable i mean uh, we know Ben, I, we know from universities, I, I, I saw this posting this morning on LinkedIn, person I know, like her a lot. She's really good. She's so proud to be starting the new session, you know, the new school year at her university because at their school, the professors really care about student success. Oh, give me a freaking break. Name the university that we have gone to, that's anything reasonable, where the faculty don't care about the student success, that we're not trying to have students. You've got to be kidding me. (laughs) I, I see that kind of stuff and it just makes my eyes roll to the back of my head. She's implying that somehow their faculty are better. And guess what? They aren't. The same extraordinary quality of faculty can be found at all the top you know, 30, 50 universities. You can tear them off and you can go, look, but in the next 50, it's all the same. Yeah.
1: You can find <laughs> Fulbright scholars serving Starbucks now. There's such a glut of quality professors out there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a really great point that, that folks should take into consideration and, and really think about. Another one that uh, you share in the book, another myth that you put out there that I just love to go through with students is you, you don't particularly like SWOT analysis, which is uh, looking at your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities and threats, and uh, you come down pretty hard on SWOT. So I'd love, and you say that, you know, SWOT is, is not strategy,
2: right? So talk to us a little bit more about that. It's so painful, Ben. <laughs> it's so painful classic SWAT approach, right, is, well, we're going to get everybody in a room and we're going to give them all different colored post-it notes. So everything you think is a strength, put it up under it. Everything you think is a weakness, put it up under there and opportunities and threats and people move the boxes around. We get all the stuff all organized. And at the end of it, everybody goes, yeah, man, I completely agree. And what happens, strength, our people, quality, our culture, right? All of these things that quite honestly, no, no customer cares about. It's it's just face validity stuff. It just feels good, I guess. I find it so incredibly stupid. It drives me nuts. At the end of the day, do we want to know what our strengths are? Of course we do. But we have processes and systems and methodologies for determining if it's a real competitive advantage. At the end of the day, I won't do all four of them. At the end of the day, do you want to know what your weaknesses are? Yeah. Guess what? Those are the table stakes things that Chris was mentioning earlier that are below median that we have got to work on and get up to at least median. If it doesn't have a direct impact on my customers, if it does not have a direct impact on my ability to retain my employees, I don't care about it. You can call it a weakness till you're blue in the face. So people morphed this horrible thing. I'm going to steal an extra few seconds here people morph this thing. Ben and I've read the original work, right? It was never proposed as a strategy analysis. It was a conceptual approach, right? Porter never intended it as some kind of an analysis tool. Do we want to know these things? Yes. Let's use real analysis. Let's use real techniques for getting at what each of these boxes are. That said, my field is probably... 35% science and 65% art. So at the end of the day, there's still a lot of art. You want to put it into the boxes at the end of the day so you can present it to people? I'm okay with that. You tell me we're going to do a SWOT and they use that word analysis, I am going to be screaming.
0: Yeah, because oftentimes, like you said, the SWOT analysis is just a bunch of navel gazing. Yeah, and you know, you you make the point at multiple times throughout your book, and, and just in, in your various um, presentations and everything you know that, that you say is that real strategy starts outside of the organization, right? And about thinking about things from the perspective of your customers. Uh, whereas the traditional SWOT analysis is kind of like a security blanket, right? It's something that we do. We look at ourselves and we talk about ourselves and it makes us feel good. And then maybe at the end of that, we have some sort of document we can produce and then we can show to others to make us feel good that we have a plan, right? And speaking of that, that plan, you already touched on this a little bit, but I want to touch on one more myth that you talk about in the book, which is this linkage between the strategy process or the strategic plan and time, right that it's something that we do on a yearly cadence or something like that just explain a little bit about how that's problematic and maybe how else we should be thinking about strategy
2: yeah i actually find the concept of time on strategy is to be probably the most destructive thing i can do with my employees just imagine right and we've been through, all three of us have been through this At the end of the year, they're going to have a new strategic plan, right? My God, we got to start all over again and figure out what the heck this is. So strategy, if it's well-designed, strategy should last as long as possible, right? As long as we can hold it together, because then I keep all my employees moving in the same direction. When do I need to really worry about strategy? Well, when there's a major Uh, terminology, discontinuity, right? A major change. So we get a big technological change or a big new competitor comes in the market or one of our current competitors starts doing something brand new. We should then, when these big things happen, we should look at our strategy. Does it still hold true? Are those still competitive advantages, right? And if they are, then we should just continue on. We should look. But Absent those big changes, we should drive the strategy as long as is humanly possible. I, I would bet, uh, no joke, I would bet we twice a month, we get a call into the company where they want us to run or help facilitate a an annual strategic plan. And my folks, God bless them, I don't even have to answer the question. They say, we do not facilitate, first of all, because Chuck is far too arrogant to facilitate. He wants to press his points down. <laughs> we don't facilitate, but second of all, you should not be doing an annual plan. You should maybe look at it, but why would you look at it annually? You want to look at it as things change in the marketplace, right along the way. And and Ben, you've been pointing out the myths. I've, I I um, I did that at the front of the book to have a little fun. Um, I was uh you know I'm a godfather to a, a bunch of my my nieces and nephews and one of the times we were there one of my nieces she was just wailing like crazy and the father steps back from it he goes to the to the whole congregation he says sometimes exorcism is painful. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I always thought maybe what we should do is just like, Chris, put these myths out there. Let's just acknowledge them, put them out there. And sometimes exorcism is painful and yeah. people will read my book and then decide not, they don't want to work with me. And by the way, I'm good with that because I don't want to work with them either. So this works.
1: <laughs> yeah, something I want to highlight here is a lot of the people, the SWAT people, and these are academic jackwagons who've never had to borrow from their house to make payroll in a given month, right? They, they don't know. And so I know a lot of the practitioners, the CEOs, the in-the-trenches business folk, you know, kind of look skeptically at this academic stuff, which Ben and I are like, hey, listen, there's a lot of good evidence-based stuff. We should do that. That being said, in strategy, the evidence-based stuff, is stop doing all this other crap. Right. And one people want to do an annual strategy meeting and facilitate it for you because they can build out their calendar. Look, I got this work for the next five years. You know, that's January. And and don't go for that. Right. You want a person of integrity like Chuck, ourselves, and I'm sure there's others out there that'll say, listen, man, you don't need this hokey pokey stuff. Right. So. Let's let's talk about how strategy really works now that we know that we shouldn't do it annually. It needs to be, you know, the agile guys are really good about sensing and responding to the environment. Okay. We believe the myths swats, not worth it for me. Now let's just say, well, how do we get to it and start to it? Um, You've got a great strategy model where you talk about, you know, formulation and that stuff. Let's walk through your model briefly here at a high level.
2: Sure. And, and you, 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 kicked off on this thing earlier. Um, strategy starts outside the organization, right? Strategy starts where the customers are. The people inside of the company get myopic. They look at what their company is and how great it is. And they just, they get kind of focused on this. Well, the customer is looking at all your competitors. The customer is looking at substitutes for doing it. The customer is deciding whether to do it or not do it, right? Purchase or not purchase. So we start outside of the organization. And you simplified it earlier, which actually I loved because I think that that's as easy a way to get started as any. But we typically try to think of terms of who do we bump up against. So strategists always talk about bump competitors. That is, if I didn't get the job, who got it? If I didn't get the sale, who got it? If I did get the sale, who did they not use? And I have this crazy, ridiculous methodology where, you know, we ask the customer, you know, just <laughs> suddenly, like, I don't ask the customer why they did it, because they'll lie. I ask the customer who they purchased from or do, considered in, instead of me. And you can come up with a list of bump competitors. These are the ones that we bump up against on a regular basis. Great. What do we know about them? And Chris said earlier, you know, let's go do an internet search. Let's go find out what they're using for such and such. Let's go, you know, let's go figure out what they're claiming are their competitive advantages. Not whether they actually do it or not. What they're claiming are those competitive advantages. And let's compare ourselves to that, right? So let's start outside of the organization with our competitors. Shifts from there, and I don't know how far you want me to go, but it shifts from there. We, you know, who is that customer that we really want to consider? Right? Who's the, who do we think are perfect customers now? We'll refine that later after we really know our competitive advantages. And then we can dive inside the organization and break up the organization into the table stakes parts, which is most of what is done. And those parts that we think are our competitive advantages. We don't know that they are. But we think they are. And actually, what I tell clients to do is send out an email. Everybody in the organization, tell me why you think people buy from us. Why do you think someone goes past a competitor and comes to us? Why do you think we have sales? And let them all respond. I always tell CEOs, give them an hour. I don't want them colluding. Give them an hour. Send it all back in. And you'll come up with this. It'll be an incredible list. Happens to be every time. Big, long list of things that people think are potentially a competitive advantage. Then let's run that through some kind of a methodology and some kind of a process to do that. The one that is certainly the most well-analyzed both from a practice point of view and certainly from a research point of view is some version of resource-based analysis. So... The, you know, Some people call it Vrin, and some call it Vrio, and some call it Vrist, right? At heart, I'm a professor, so it's resource-based analysis. And about <laughs> the only thing I have done is what I call practical look at it, that is, all these other models and all the classic theoretical models start with value. Well, we know how hard it is to calculate value, right? you got to do pricing analysis. You have to do all, so much to calculating value let's only calculate value on the ones that actually get through. So let's not start with V, let's start with R, right? And let's figure out whether it's rare and it's durable and it's non-substitutable. And if it somehow gets through all of those, then let's go do value analysis. So it's just a sort of a reframing a little bit on the classic resource-based analysis approach.
0: Yeah. So just to clarify for our listeners, so you make sure you're really understanding what what Chuck's spilling here. Uh, you know, So you have all these things that you think might be competitive advantages for your organization, but you don't stop with there. You, that's not good enough. You have to go through a process to figure out whether or not these things kind of should count as competitive advantages. And going through the process, the modified resource-based analysis that you describe in your book is a way to kind of give you a litmus test, right? So you can say, you know, does it, is it rare? Is it durable? All these different types of questions. And if you get through those and the answer is yes to them, then, hey, you have a candidate, right? And I I think if if I'm recalling your process correctly, you know, then then the idea is, hey, we also need to then look and see which of our kind of our core competitors also have those as well and see if, and that's kind
2: of another level that you need to go through, right? Oh yeah, Ben, there's all kinds of that. I, I don't rely, I wouldn't rely on an executive team or a whole company to come up with that and be, just walk away and say, okay, we got it, let's go. You got it, <laughs> you're right. You've got to validate this. You've got to go do some data. But why, are, why, why would we go validate it, do all the data analytics, all the voice of the customer, all that stuff, if we can't even get it through? So you yeah. see these companies that say, well, Chuck, what we do is we start with the data And we let the data tell us where to go. I'm like, holy, you've got to be kidding me, right? The data is this amorphous, horrible thing. And by the way, you don't have full data anyway. You have right-sided data. We could get into that. How about we use the data that you've got and all this analysis, but let's do it on the things that we think actually got through, right? That we as a group actually got through. And then, then you might have something. But there's you know, we probably a 65, we still could be wrong, Ben, right? I mean, it's, (laughs) then it comes down to how well we execute it. You know, it's still a lot of art, but at least we're further along the way than we were.
0: Yeah. And so you just mentioned art. And I I love that how you, you know, I think you said it earlier in our conversation, how, you know, there's a big chunk of strategy that is art. And then there's, there's some science there too, right? Um, I guess explain a little bit more about what you mean there and kind of the implications that might have for, how an executive team thinks about strategy.
2: Yeah, so the science is it's pretty well honed. I mean, certainly in what constitutes rare and what constitutes durable, we're not so good at substitutability analysis yet, um, really haven't gotten there, but we got we have some elements to it. But at the end of the day... It's how the executive team views it. It's how the executive team views it relative to where the competitors are. And these are people who know their company. They know their industry. They're deeply embedded in what's going on. So at the end of the day, they get to make the qualitative calls that all of this um, actually generates. I, I, I can give you a, a quick example. I can't name the company, but I was working with a very large construction company. We had all the executives in the room. They were battling through all this stuff. They came up with one of these things. It was a competitive advantage. And I was like, guys, there's no way that's a competitive advantage, right? (laughs) Even if it was rare, which it isn't, it's not durable. And even if it was durable, and I got all the way through it, oh, they just fought me and fought me. So at the end of the day, it's their company, right? So now I'm meeting with the next level of managers, probably 400 of them. I get to this one. I mean, the room explodes. they like, you've got to be kidding me. How could you let them do that? That can't be a competitive advantage. I said, well, you know what? At the end of the day, it's their company. They're the executives, and they say it is. So let me tell you what we've got to do. We have to implement it. And if it fails to be a competitive advantage, now you can go back and say something to them. But you can't just say it isn't one. You've got to go tried to implement it. So over the next six to nine months, they did it. And I, we put activity metrics. We made sure they were doing it. Son of a gun. Sales went up 60%. <laughs> when they talked to the customers, one of the biggest things the customers said was this thing as a competitive advantage. They were Right they got it through and they were right about it. And the only way we find out is if we actually implement it. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of art to this stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah no, that's great. Uh, and it just kind of triggers in my mind, you know, in the face of, of ambiguity, right? And, and in our environment, at any time, there's a lot of volatility and ambiguity. But in the face of that, sometimes you have to do some experimentation to
2: figure out what truth is. Agreed. I completely agree. And, and you know, where, where's the myth that always happens, Ben, is that people don't actually implement, right? right? So you've come up with a great competitive advantage. You've designed it. You've put together KPIs. You've got the metrics. You've got all the stuff ready to go. And then you're like Jean-Luc Picard, right? And you go, make it so. And you head to the ready room, right? And you're like, what well, should be happening? Well... You get out in the field and you find out that you're like, oh yeah, we're not really doing that, you know? And then the strat the person's like, man, thought that was a great strategy. But after six months, it's not doing anything. Well, yeah, because no one did anything with it. You're right. I love the experiment fail. Experiment, fail, right? Experiment, woo, worked. Let's 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 actually put it in place.
0: Yeah, that's great. So I want to get into kind of some implementation stuff here and maybe kind of talk about how leaders can get their organizations to actually think about and do strategy in a more productive manner. Um, You know, one thing that you mention in the book is you say that strategy is iterative, sequential, and continuous. And given that, if strategy is iterative, sequential, and continuous, is there a cadence or how do you recommend that senior leaderships, you know, think about and, and really try to get some traction behind strategic items or strategy in general.
2: Yeah. And and so let's break those things down. So it's iterative because of what we were just talking about, right? It's we have to test, we have to retest, we're refining all the time, but strategy is continuous because damn, those competitors won't just let us make money. They're (laughs) always trying to take our money away from us. So we're constantly having to refine, adjust to what's going on in the market and adjust to that along the way. So it really, in my opinion, depends on sort of the velocity of the industry that they're operating in. So in some industries, the velocity is relatively slow. And because of that, the iterations can be much longer. But there are some where the velocity of the industry is so quick that our iterations have to match that, and I, I, I one of the things I like to say is you've got to be invested in this all the time. You can't say, "Oh, there we've got it. Let it go, and we're going to go do something else." It's just it can't it can't be done that way because again, there's all there are all these competitors out there trying to take it away from you.
0: Yeah, and you know I oftentimes come across executive teams that. Um, tend to view strategy as something that's done, you know, maybe once a quarter or something. It's like, oh, we we do our meeting. Maybe we get together. We talk about, oh, hey Bob, did you do that? Hey uh, Jeff, did you do that? And they have a list of items that they're trying to do. And, and I, I think that is not, I don't think, the strategy mindset, right?
2: No, it's not. And and any of those things that they're doing, my first question to them is, okay, what what does that align to? Does that align to? bringing an orthodox thing up to speed or does that align to moving us forward? I think what they miss is that we want to try to dedicate as much time, money and mental firepower on what differentiates us as we possibly can. You guys, you know, you run your own business. What do you want to where do you want to invest your time and your money? And you're right. You're trying to separate yourself in order to do that. Why does that change when we have the hundredth employee that gets hired and all they're worried about is the paycheck and what the vacation schedule is. <laughs> yeah, Precisely. some of
1: this is like conventional warfare. Well, think about the founding of our country. The Brits were like, guys, you got this battle thing all wrong. We line up and shoot at each other. That's what we do. <laughs> like, you, hey competitor, you can't change your strategy. Our strategy uh, meeting isn't for another two months and, and that's unfair, right? <laughs> yeah. You can't, you can't do that. You're a numbskull if you're in that place. But let's, let's take a real world example. Let's look back at the day when Uber launched, right? It's kind of, wow, there wasn't anything like it. Very quickly, Lyft came around. And they're basically the same service. So if you're talking to those two, you know, they're trying stuff. They're experimenting. Hey, Uber Eats will deliver food. Uber, you know, lawn care, we'll drop off your fertilizer feed and seed. You know, like whatever the stuff they're... Comp- like there's not a differentiator there. And, and what's that, and when you think with, with your strategy cap and you're looking at Uber Lyft, what, what comes to mind? Yeah, so I, I love the way you said that. My,
2: uh, we were just up in Boston for uh, about 10 days work and my son is moving out of Boston. He's moving to a new job in Miami. Every single day he would, when we get ready to go to a restaurant, he, I'm gonna a, I'm check them both dad. Uber, oh, $16. Lyft, 13 bucks. Lyft it is. And he punched the, whatever one was cheaper. What they have been, they, you know, as you know, uh, Uber basically exploited a market issue with fixed taxi cabs, buses, and inability to, you know, to do stuff in an economy that was willing, where people were willing to share the time that they're in their car. What Lyft did was jump in basically just as fast, right, or almost. And what they've created, I think, is a duopoly. I think they've got, they as long as they stay relatively close to the other one, they get their fair share of business. They Taxis have yet to figure out how to compete with them effectively. No other organization has really done a good job in competing with them effectively. And if they can somehow get their cost in line, which obviously COVID and, as you mentioned, the ability to deliver food that doesn't spin on you and... You know, dog food that doesn't argue with you along the way, that if they can figure out that cost structure, they've got a really viable, nice, probably duopoly model that's gonna go forward for a long time without having to be a, a lot of competitive advantage.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a great example. You know, what I'd like to talk about now is maybe pivot a little bit towards the execution piece of strategy. We've touched on some of these things already, uh, but, you know, you spent some time in your book and I'm sure in your your work with clients on things like your mission and your your vision, your values and principles and so forth. Um, talk us through a little bit of the, about the role that those might play uh, if done right, because I see it's done poorly, very, very frequently. Uh, if it's done well, how can that be something that helps with your strategy?
2: Yeah, they, you're right, because they they check a box. Yep. Mission check. Vision check. Culture <laughs> check. All right, let's get back to work. Um, the Basically, the back half of the book is implementation. Formulation's fun. I mean, let's just, come on. Formulation's fun, it, 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 even if you're not as bizarre as I am. And implementation is messy and difficult and painful because implementation requires me to convince people to do things, <laughs> right? So... I'm a terrible example of that because my issue is, what part of me paying you is insufficient motivation to do your freaking job? But apparently, that's not very motivational. So all of strategy implementation is about convincing employees to implement on our strategy promise. So you reeled it off, and there's a whole slew more, and I won't jump ahead. There, but everything that we're about to talk about in implementation is all about getting employees in line and for consistency. So mission sta- I I love mission statements, a well-crafted, short mission statement that people can actually remember, oh my gosh, why would you give up this chance to communicate? So some employees, the written word works well, right? Mission statement, here it is. For some employees, it's about the feelings they have, right? So I craft values that align with those mission statements, and that addresses them. Some employees, it's about you know where we're going. Talk to me about why I'm going to spend the next ten years of my life. So we craft a vision, which is really, right? A vision is really just describing. It's um, storytelling for the, for lack of a better term. Chris used the the stuff about military, right? A great military leader brings all of their troops around and talks about what it's going to be like when it's over, right? When we win this battle or what you're going to be able to tell your grandkids about when you were in the, you know, at that such and such time and the success that we had. So vision is just another means of communicating and quite honestly, all these things that we're going to talk about, I think here for a few minutes in the implementation are all oriented around aligning my
1: employees so that everybody's moving in relatively the same direction. You know, one of the things you don't want to do table stakes, and this isn't explicitly in your book, but I, well, and maybe you'll tell me I'm full of baloney on this one. You don't want to be table stakes on project management and execution right? Yeah. No. There's oh, so many agree. people, they oh, kick yeah. off. We're going to have ah. another kickoff meeting. We're going to have yet another kickoff meeting. When are you delivering? Or you go into these IT or you know, the IT part of the organizations where I spend a lot of time and it's, you're talking to the CTO and they're just like, hey, so what's going on over here? Oh, we're really busy. We have a five-year backlog. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. That's Wow, that's a lot. What are you delivering this quarter? We're really busy. We got a five-year backlog. (laughs) And so don't go table stakes. If you're looking at your competitors and they can't execute and get project management and delivery down, you need to chart your own path there. And there's there's a good body of knowledge around that.
2: Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And you'll notice, Chris, I don't talk about it much in the book because I'm not an expert. I know how to hire experts who do this kind of stuff. They've got those PMP initials afterwards, and they actually know what they're doing and delivering the stuff. If we can't deliver, it doesn't do us any good. And you're exactly right. It's got to be about implementation cadence, where we're constantly, of course, working on things, but also delivering along the way. I, I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah. So, you know, mission's important, vision's important, values and principles are important, all these things to help employees um, psychologically and then behavior-wise, you know, kind of my realm of of the world, get get in the the, the same direction, doing the same things to execute strategy. You know, one tool that you you talk about in the book, you provide a bunch of examples, and I think is a helpful way to um, drive some of that alignment is the strategy map. Um, so what, what is the one page strategy map? How, where did that come from and, and how's it better perhaps than the, uh, multi-page, uh, dusty <laughs> thing I have up on my shelf?
2: <laughs> well, one is I might actually be able to remember it cause it's all <laughs> on one page and it's not too complicated. Um, I, I think most of us credit, um, the one page strategy map to McDonald's, um, McDonald's was in a free fall There were all kinds of issues happening in the early 2000s, and the non-exec CEO and the head of the marketing department said, we've got to put together what they called a plan to win. And it was overly complex. It had too much stuff on it. It It wasn't precise, but it laid the groundwork for the ideas, man, on one piece of paper is why we exist, what we're trying to do, and how we think we're going to get there. So this has morphed over time. I mean, if, you know, the horrible thing of the Internet is that everything lives. And so when people type in strategy map, they're like, Chuck, there are thousands of them out there. And I'm like, yeah. And most of them are horrible because we thought it was really good 18 years ago, but it does. It's not good anymore. OK, nobody at McDonald's would go, man, I'll tell you what, we should go back to that original plan to win. It's like, no. So anyway, beauty of a strategy map. Let's put it all on paper in, in a way that people can get. So some of my clients are immensely talented artistically, and they've got little avatars carrying around competitive advantages, right? And people climbing posts up there with uh, an orthodox thing that they're putting on top, and they have all kinds of stuff. From my perspective, it's pretty simple. What are the two or three orthodox things we're working on? What are the two or three table stake things that folks are honestly below median right now and are hurting our ability to make or retain a customer. What are we working on? What are we going to fix? And it's about fixing them now. Where I will not come back next year and have this same conversation about what we're trying to work on. We're going to fix these things. We're going to put them in our rearview mirror, and we're moving on to other things that need to be worked on. Then it's about what are the two or three things that truly separate you in the minds of customers? And hopefully we come up with a pithy way of saying it. Then it shifts into, well, what would you want to hear customers say about you relative to that cool thing? So if that cool thing really is a separator, what would you want to hear customers say about you? And then I shift over and say, okay, what activities do you want your employees to do that you think... We'll make that happen, and, and I, I've always thought this was one of the biggest disconnects in management. All of management is a hypothesis. We believe that if our employees do X, 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 and X, that back here sales will go up, and you know, net profit will go up, and EBIT will go up. We don't know, we just think it will. Great, what do you want your employees to do that you think Will get you closer to that. And if the employees deliver and it doesn't get you closer, well, that's on you. That means you didn't deliver. But what we want to do is ensure the employees are actually doing it. So on the strategy map, it is activity metrics. That is the actual things we want employees doing that we think will get us to where we're trying to achieve. Sorry for the long answer there.
1: No, no, that's great. You know, I I one of the things I think about, you know. So here here's the other side as we start to like delve into the nether regions of Chuck's mind. But um, <laughs> you know, Ben Ben and I are interested in proving the world of work and helping people flourish at work and beyond. That's why we started this podcast that, you know, we don't charge anything for. We don't have any, you know, if Coca-Cola wants to sponsor us, we'd totally take their cash. Don't yeah, get me that'd wrong. Be good. But, but the the thing is, is if everybody's focused on table stakes, the table stakes for people and organizations are kind of bad. Work life balance, um, proper training of leadership and management, and most of the stuff is done by hacks or pop business books. If if table stakes is the goal, how do we win in strategy and also win? with our people and creating the kind of world we want to have.
2: Well, yeah, I think that's
1: a, I think that becomes
2: a management call. And I like the way you would go call it on management. Um, you can simply be no worse than anybody else, as Tom Peters would say, right? We're no worse than anyone else. Oh, hey, there's a thing to really charge around. But but it doesn't get you anything. You're talking, or I, let me paraphrase what you said. You tell me how wrong I am. What you're saying is, look, I can take this thing that you think is table stakes and you think doesn't matter, and I can turn it into a competitive advantage for my organization. And you're darn right, you can. And we've got example after example after example of companies that took orthodox table stake things and turned them into powerful competitive advantages. One, so my two cautions on this, just real quick. Number one, it's scary because everybody views it as table stakes, right? So for you to be able to turn this this into a competitive advantage, it's the second thing. You have to be so far above your competitors on this that your customers notice. So far ahead that your customers notice. And if you do, and by the way, if you're right and it is an advantage, then it's compelling. It's absolutely compelling, Chris.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. You know, an example that kind of came to mind as you were talking about that, um, you know, you can tell me if I'm wrong, is perhaps like customer service at Chick-fil-A.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think, it, and I, you know, when I get into this perennial online battles about customer service, right? And that's yeah, mostly because, it's <laughs> because everybody touts customer service as their competitive advantage, and they are horrible, It's certainly no better than anybody else. Yeah. So you've got companies out there, Chick-fil-A being one example, but there are are others, right, where they have taken – but they don't – it's not customer service. It's not this generic word. They have specifically said when we say – we want you to treat the customer well. But what we're saying is we also want you to – Follow up with the customer we want you to make sure the customer has refills. We want you to make sure you – we're going to narrow it down to these four or five things, and we're going to be – we're going to excel at these things. And we think this will get customers to go past competitors and come to us, right? So here's what Chick-fil-A has done, and they were right. They could easily have invested all that, and everybody goes – Yeah, but it's still just a chicken sandwich, right? (laughs)
0: Indeed. Uh, You know, one thing that you added to the 2.0 version of your book is a chapter on nonprofits. And, you know, Chris and I are both on boards of nonprofits. We love nonprofits Think they just really are a unique feature of of, particularly in America, we do. You know, it's just a large landscape. Do a lot of great work. Um, why did you add that? How do you know? How should nonprofits maybe think about strategy in in some different ways using your ideas here?
2: Yeah, and, and the next book it needs to be like a quarter of the book. So I, I'm a huge. I'm with you too. I am a a huge fan of nonprofits. When when I started my company um, eight years ago, I decided twenty percent of our work was going to be for nonprofits. I would probably make it more, but I like to eat. And so, but, but nonpro- nonprofits have all the exact same issues. And you guys know this. I'm going to be preaching to the choir here for just a minute. But what gets donors to go past all the other things they can donate and donate to your nonprofit? What gets volunteers to go past all the other ways that? Think of how many times you're asked for money in a year. Why do you give money and your time to certain things? So, when we get to the nonprofit world, I change it from competitors to comparison groups the, along the way, but it's fundamentally the same stuff, but the eye turns. So in our normal for-profit business, the eye is on the customer who parts with money, right? And we deliver to that customer. Nonprofits have got a much more complex world. They have clients on one side that they are taking care of. They are doing things for For these clients to help these clients. And on the other side, they have to draw in donors and volunteers for this. Yelling and screaming about all the good work you're doing over here. We're just so great over here. Look at all the stuff we did. Let me show you some success stories. It's what everybody else does, it's all the same stuff. So, what would appeal to these donors and volunteers? What's a separator for them? What are the I mean, the orthodox issues in nonprofits, as you guys know, is horrible, right? They're terribly behind in technology, terribly behind in some of their procedures and processes that make it so hard for a donor to be a part of them or a volunteer to be a part. So I get them to think about this like a piece of glass. And when we look through the one side of the glass, we look through the other side of the glass. We're going to take care of clients. Look. If I came to you guys and I said, I can get your nonprofit $10 million more per year, can you use it? (laughs) Right? The answer is there's an almost unlimited need, right, on the other end. So what would get it so that they would draw them in to be able to do it? What are you doing for your clients that is unique, it's rare, it's durable, it's non-substitutable, and gets us to go past competitors or comparison groups, and donate to you. So I am a, I, I believe they all need this same strategy, but it's the lens and the methodology we look at. Let me add one last thing on this, because you guys are on boards, I am as well. Um, I am not an expert in what they do. I, I don't do it day in and day out, right? They are in the trenches. They know what the clients need, and for most part, I find the people who work in these fields remarkable, absolutely remarkable with what they can do and how they do it. My job is to figure out how to attract what they're doing to attract the donors and the volunteers and how to position it so that they know what to
1: emphasize along the way. Yeah, right on. You know, I'm sitting there in my mind singing the battle hymn of the Republic, you know, as, <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> So let's keep We're gonna like, you know, go buy the book. It's excellent. Hire Chuck if you can, like awesome. But, like, you know, you run a consulting firm, do a lot of pe- uh, speaking. I think you're teaching part-time at Duke, right? Is, I am. Is that still going? On? Okay. So you were a full-time academic. You understand that. Why did you make the jump out of academia?
2: Yeah, yeah so, tenured life. <laughs> yes. Yes, and I was. I was tenured. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was, it was scary stuff. Um <laughs> I was a merger and acquisition guy for 12 years before I went back to get my PhD. So got my PhD, I love teaching. I, I still love teaching, and you're right. I teach adjunct at Duke University. I fly up the, to uh, Durham and teach my classes. Um, but the, what I found was that a lot of the students I was teaching, especially undergrads, and I love undergrads, but undergrads aren't gonna use my material. It's gonna be 20 years before the undergrads use my material. What I was really enjoying was working with the executive MBAs and the MBAs who were going to use the material very quickly. And the more I thought about it, the more stuff came to mind is like, you know what? I need, I need to, I want to have a bigger impact on what's going on in business. And you all probably don't know this. And so I will, we'll, we'll breaking news on your, on your show here. But in, uh, 20, 2012, I had a series of strokes and laying in the hospital bed Thinking about what was coming up next and recovering from those strokes, the question became, where do I think I can have the most impact in the time, whatever time it is, I'm going to be granted on this earth? And so my wife and I talked about it a long time, and she's like, this is what you enjoy doing. You like working with these companies. You love making a change. Why don't you go give it a try for a year? And if it doesn't work, you can always go back to academia. Um, And that's was eight years ago. So we've, we've had a lot of fun.
0: I love it. I love the, uh, you know, I I think it, it, it's unfortunate, but I think it does sometimes take all of us, you know, in our lives and, you know, Chris and I have gone through various things, you know, and sometimes it takes something to kind of make you think a little bit right about, Hey, life is short and we have to make the most the most impact that we can. Right. I think that that's a great way to think about things. And I encourage, I encourage my students to think about things that way as they're starting their careers As they're thinking about career changes, Um, so you know I I love it how you how you framed that, and and certainly the path that you've taken. I guess that leads me to another question of you know what do you see out there in terms of kind of the the popular landscape, what what the the, you know most executives are reading, maybe what they picked up in business school. Um, Do you think there's a good interaction between research and practice and back and forth? Are we doing the right things in academia too? What are your thoughts there?
2: (laughs) <laughs> so you're going to make sure that nobody at academia ever talks to me again, aren't you? Ben? <laughs> yeah, no. I think we're doing, and I, I, I don't think it's a surprise. We're doing a terrible job. Um, I, I read the Academy and Management Journal, the Strategic Management Journal, Journal of Business Venturing. I read every every edition that comes out, and I'm blown away by the knowledge. By oh my gosh, people have got to know how to do this, right? then it just dies in an, in academia, it just dies. Nobody turns it into something that is practical or that can actually be used. And I think this translation is so frustrating. So, you know, what drove me to go get a PhD was I was in an MA, and and every time we would do something badly and I did things badly many, many times, I, somebody would send me a research article and say, Chuck, you know, they knew how to do this. And I'd read this article and I'd go, well why didn't anyone share that with me? Right. And then I'd read another one and I was like, oh my gosh. And I decided that I wanted to be the guy to know this stuff and then figure out how to translate it. Now, mine is a really narrow little area, guys, right? Ben's area is totally different than my area in so many ways. And I know precious little about his area, but I think we do a terrible job, Ben, an absolutely terrible job. And it's and it's to the
1: detriment of business. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a vacuum, a famine of evidence-based knowledge. And guess who's filling that? It's these numbskull flavor of the week bestseller books. And there's this giant like circle. You know, they can go on the uh MSNBC, Forbes, they'll go on the, you know, we get them calling us to get on this podcast. <laughs> And not no joke. <laughs> we've only had one person that's approached us to be on this podcast and it ended up being a comedian. <laughs> right? That so he was awesome. They're they're all trying to promote their books. So in this gap. So and everybody's crying about it. Why won't people listen to the experts? Well, where have the experts been all this time? They've been up there drinking their coffee, teaching their class, checking the box on their publishing and not, you know, in the South, you have this phrase, sometimes you got to take the hay from the loft and bring it down to where the goats can get it. They're not bringing it down to where the goats can get it and and shame on them. And it's my view.
2: Yeah. And I I, I I applaud some of the universities that I've been allowed to teach at over the years of it. I've been very fortunate to be able to teach at some great schools, Tulane, Notre Dame, Duke, R- Richmond, um, they've allowed, at least me, and I think they allow pretty much all faculty the freedom to design our courses the way we wish. They're not cookie cuttered. And that our ability to then go through and say, okay, how does this change what you do? So the rule of thumb in exec MBA, going back, I, I started teaching exec MBA 20 years ago. If what I teach you this weekend, if you can't use it on Monday, I wasted your time. you've got to be it's got to be useful for you immediately, or I have wasted your time, and you're right, just going out and checking the boxes and and pitching the same stuff that's out there that anybody can read doesn't do us a darn bit of good,
0: yeah, you know I agree with you. I think that you know we should be providing these types of uh experiences in education that allow people to actually do things differently and for the better. You know, it also makes me wonder about, you know, does the is the average business professor, for example, equipped really to do that when many of them have gone straight through from undergrad to Ph.D. and they're mired in research and they're very, very smart people and they can do the most amazing statistical gymnastics that you can imagine. Um, and, and yet I I just wonder if there's, um, perhaps some other pieces that need to come into, to play in order to make that leap from research to practice and actually help
2: people do things differently. Uh, I, Ben, I couldn't agree with, I couldn't agree more with all the stuff you just said. I mean, they're brilliant. Look, I mean, we talked to them, right? They're brilliant. They have, they have absolutely no clue what goes on in an actual business. And they, they can't translate it and they can't figure out how to do it. The shame of it all is that there are a lot of us out there, You, we, we a lot of us out there that can. And so I, 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 when you guys wrote me about this podcast, you noticed one of my notes back. One of the things I loved about and I have loved about listening to your podcast um, has been the practicality of it, that it's about actually doing something and so i think that there's a you know there's a role for this my my wife used to be the head of uh, the uh, accounting department and she said you know she said she was always told there were show horses and work horses right and so let the show i'll let the show horses run all they want over here but let's figure out how to translate it, and let's appropriately reward the workhorses too. But you're right, and also there are a number of universities out there. There, there's no reward for good teaching. There's, there's only all your rewards are on the statistical jumping of Lysol.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? So one of the things I want our listeners to take away is um, something about the vendor landscape. And and Chuck, I'll have you weigh in on this as well, is everybody's trying to make it their methodology so they can copyright it and sell you their version. But Ben and I don't do that. We know like, hey, if it's strategy, it's Chuck. You know, he's done such a deep dive into this. We're not going to reinvent the wheel. And then lower the quality so we can patent it for ourselves, right? When it comes to stuff about like, we're not going to come up with a new personality test. You know, Myers-Briggs is really crappy. Why don't we have our own crappy personality test that we can make a million dollars off that's not the big five? You know, there's these bodies of knowledge that we have a best practice on. Um, Are you familiar with the Kenefin framework, Chuck? I am not. Sorry. Okay. So that, you know, the idea of good practice, best practice, and then there's like innovative practice, right? Within this realm, as you look at the strategy landscape, right? But, you know, besides you, is there anybody else you'd recommend people do extra plus up with?
2: Um. Yeah. So you make a really good point. I have vendors reach out to me all the time who want to it's come out, trademark, you know, the stuff I do or have me put it into templates. Um, and I have worked with a number of organizations where that's been the entire mode of operation is how many of these can they get? How many then people can they do train the trainer and turn, a, turn it into some kind of a pyramid scheme um, kind of along the way? Yeah, I, I'm going to be terribly remiss because I didn't think this one out ahead of time, Chris, to to do a good job of giving you that list of things. Um, but peripheral to my area is I think anybody who isn't reading Adam Grant is making a mistake. Um, he's a, he's just one of those thinkers uh, along the way um, that I think that Rabiniak up at Maryland is another one of the, the people who is can turn something into something that really matters. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell is not an academic, but a, a truly a brilliant writer who— Takes all of these meta analyses, right, and then writes it so that we all can read it and go, "Oh, that's what a tipping point is. Oh, that's what outliers are." Right? It was it's research article after research. You look at his bi- bibliography; he's just pulled this together, but then reframed it so that we can actually read it. We can actually get something out of it. So, I think those folks are absolutely brilliant along the way, and then we get. We get the periodic person who comes along from outside of academia. Well, I guess Malcolm does as well, and can really deliver a strategy value to us. I think that um, um, Hoffman, who wrote, I think it's called American Icon. Um, again, I could look this up. Again, I'd probably back here on my uh, on my shelf along the way here somewhere. But the story of how Alan Mulally came into Ford with the strategy already ready to go and what he did to implement that strategy and the difficulty and the processes and and the approaches he used.
1: So I love that kind of stuff. That's awesome. I got. I gotta say, I'm not the biggest fan of Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, Chris! Oh, Chris! You hurt what? my
2: heart. All right. So here's the issue on Malcolm. I'm gonna say it, and you tell me. You tell me this. The, the, we do I it think live the, on the podcast. This, this yes, is sure. <laughs> Top front 150 pages of his books, all of them, brilliant. I think his publisher told him he has to write 227 pages. Because the last 75 on every book I've read of his, I'm like, why am I reading this? This is horrible. But the front 150 I love. So I, I guess we disagree. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Well, you know, Chuck, this has just been a fantastic conversation. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, you know, we, we put a bunch of resources into the, the show notes so folks can check out, you know, where to find out more about you, your website. We have, uh, you know, where they can buy your book and so forth. Um. What else? I'll let you have the last word. Anything else that you want to share with the world, with the Indigo podcast audience about strategy or anything at all?
2: Oh, funny. Um. And thank you very much for that. That's very kind. Look, I my, my, think my take is goes down this line. Strategy is not that hard. You don't need a guru to come up with strategy. You don't need um, to be brilliant at it or understand all the nuances at it. If you can get just the fundamentals, then you can do it yourself. And I, I, I tell my students over and over and over again, my goal is for you all to never have to hire me. I, You should be able to do this kind of stuff. This is not secret. It's not Chuck Bamford. It's just I, I have a way of writing it and saying it. But it's all out there on on how to do this. And what people need to do is take it seriously. I saw, I, I wish I had the quote sitting in front of me and I apologize I don't, but it was in the New York Times and it was something along the line. And I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember it exactly, but that the typical executive spends less than two hours a month on strategy for their organization and it's to me to me it's stunning i'm kind of trying to figure out what the heck else you should be doing if you're an executive so there's my there's my thought but i'm also terribly biased cuz i'm a strategy guy
0: <laughs> well chuck bamford it has been an absolute pleasure having you thank you for being a guest on the indigo podcast
2: thank you so much for inviting me to do this it's been uh, it's been fun thanks
0: for listening to the indigo podcast